Welcome to Savvy Dialogue, the most knowledgeable podcast on the planet. I'm your host, Wallen Augustine. And I'm your other host, Jane Augustine. Today, we'll be speaking with two exceptionally talented opera performers, Sam Schlieber and Caitlin Crable. We'll discuss the opera industry and what goes into being a performer. Without further ado, let's get into it. All right, let's start with uh, first experience or memory you have with music. Caitlin, do you want to kind of share your experience first with that? Sure. So we always had music on in the house when I was a kid. And actually, even now, if you go to my parents' house, there is most likely something playing either on the record player or in the CD player. So like music was always something that was in my ears. I didn't really know I wanted to be a performer. I certainly sang in my room, but I was really too shy as a kid to perform in front of others, but I've always loved it. So like music has always been part of like the fabric of my being. Um, For me, I grew up singing in church. Um, I grew up Lutheran. If you don't know Martin Luther, he uh, really wanted to have lots of hymn singing as part of worship. And so like a good Lutheran boy, I grew up singing in church. I was in like a youth choir at the church. There's probably four or five of us. Um, I took piano lessons. I, at the, when I was a kid, I kind of picked up instruments, I, I think, easier than others. Um, I studied piano for several years. I played trumpet in school. Um, I, I learned a guitar later. You know, I could play um, drums. My sister had a drum set that I borrowed from her several times. So that was, that's kind of my first memories and experiences. Yeah. And, and how does that like translate to, as you grow up, right? Like you having those little experiences and I think it starts to click for you and you're like, I, I really like doing this. And I, obviously I know you probably like dab in other different like sports or other interests, but as you start to mature and get a little bit older, how do you like, how, what is that feeling like when you, you know, like, this is it. Like, when does it click for you to understand, like, this is what I want to do? Well, I remember um, when I was in, so I started playing trumpet when I was in fifth grade, and I'd already taken piano lessons, I think, for five years at that point. And when I first started, uh, my mom, it was a requirement. I did not have a choice, and I kind of resisted at first. And then I really started to enjoy it because, um, you know, the the uh, they, they had these method books, and they were really kid-oriented and fun. And then when I moved, when I started playing trumpet, because I already knew how to read music, I felt like I was ahead of the curve already. And when I started playing guitar, I'd had, in one of the books, they had music theory. So they talked about different chord progressions and kind of how notes, multiple notes are put together to make harmony and that sort of thing. So again, when I moved to guitar, which is like a chord-based instrument, uh, I felt like I kind of I knew what I was doing, and so I feel like by that point, guitar. I think I was in middle school, thirteen or fourteen. I think by that point, I was definitely, um, you know, really interested in and in seeing where uh, everything, all the all the possibilities in music could take me. Gotcha, Caitlin. Do you had a, like a similar story as well, or was like was it different for you? Mine was really different because I didn't have it wasn't kind of a requirement for me to be um, in sort of a music lesson. And so when I was in seventh grade, or maybe it was the end of sixth grade, the choir teacher at my middle school 
posted a sign up to try out for a choir for seventh grade. It was, it was brand new for the school. They only had eighth grade choirs. So now they were going to have seventh grade. And so because I knew I loved to sing in my room and I'd always listened to music, I thought to myself, why don't I just try it and see if I love it? So I, I signed up and I got into choir and from then on, I was just kind of always performing. And as I, as I got bolder, as I got into high school and started doing like acapella groups and getting chances to sing by myself, things started really clicking inside of me. So I knew that I wanted to pursue music. I didn't know if I wanted to be a performer, but I knew that I needed to do something with music because it made me feel so good. Yeah, it's, it's crazy when you say that you were so shy when you were younger because we all know you now and <laughs> you're definitely not shy. So I feel like that's definitely like completely eradicated out of your personality. Yeah. Um, and you I also you also um, you also were on a CD. You had an album come out in high school, I think. Right. Oh, yeah. The acapella group that I was in, they did a, an album every year of the songs that we had performed throughout the school year which was really fun to get to do that at such a young age. Yeah. So, but I, I just, I wouldn't say that I was really a shy person. I just was really nervous to perform in front of people. And so like, even for my seventh grade choir audition, I almost didn't get in because the audition was sing happy birthday for me, but I was so nervous that I could barely make a sound. And he was, the teacher was like, okay, you have, five more minutes. And if you don't sing happy birthday, you're not going to be able to be in choir. And so <laughs> it, I was like, just overcome with nervousness. And finally I just did it. And I'm sure it was the most pitiful sounding happy birthday you've ever heard, but all you had to do to get into choir was be able to sing it. So. See, that's so funny. Cause for me, I feel like I have gone the opposite way where when I was younger, I had no problem, you know, in, in uh, middle school and high school, I was always uh, doing some sort of, like song, like for a class project or like stupid stuff like that. But now I would rather not sing happy birthday, like even for my family. <laughs> so like even people say, like when I tell people I'm, I'm an opera singer and they ask me to sing, you know, it's one of those like, oh, I, I would rather not do that right now. Yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah. That makes me like, remember I was like watching something. I think it was Dave Chappelle and like Kanye were hanging out and something. And then Kanye was like, hey, Dave, tell a joke. Because you're a comedian. That's right. <laughs> right. It's like, eh, it's probably not what I want to do right now. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Yes. Yeah, it's different when it becomes your job, I think, because yeah. then yeah. it's, I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's interesting hearing how, you know, you kind of realize this is what you wanted to go into. Because I remember taking choir like choir class in high school, and it, it didn't go well for me. Uh, <laughs> I, I remember, oh, really? Yeah, I remember I was, I was a tenor. I, I think I think it went, it went well, because like, my our instructor was always like you're good you like she tried to get us and we were like the we were like the football players and the athlete that took right, choir right. class and we're in there and we're, we're 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 singing and I think I remember I was a tenor and I was like okay like I could do this we had our little concert and stuff and she's like you're so good you should really pursue it but I was like I don't feel like I'm really good at this you know and like <laughs> and she, I think she was just trying to push us forward to keep trying and motivate us but like I it's interesting seeing that like when I go ahead and do that I'm like oh like I'm not very good at this but I'm I'm pretty good at this football thing so I'll just stick to that so it's interesting hearing how you two had the experience and you you went kind of different ways but you still knew okay like this is something that I'm I, I enjoy and I think that I'm good at so it's like that's like a question for me like when did you realize that you were good at it 
for me, I rem- I have a very, very distinct memory of being in daycare when I was maybe seven or eight and singing for people and them telling me that I needed to be quiet because I wasn't very good. So um, that's not the answer to your question, but it's kind of the opposite because that was the moment where I was like, well, that was the moment where I thought to myself, I'm going to do anything I can to be really good at singing so I can show them. Yeah. Like uh, so challenge accepted. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So I would say that I first realized that I was good when, um, so one of my favorite movies of all time is Sister Act 2, Back in the Habit. And there is this part in it where the choir sings, Oh, Happy Day. And I was, I had that soundtrack in while I was doing dishes and I was singing along with the soloist and I was able to do all of the things that he was doing. And I thought to myself, Hey, I'm pretty good at this. I was probably 10 or 11, maybe going on 12. And then I started like seeking out all of this other music and thinking, seeing if I could do what the singer was doing. Yeah. So that's kind of when I had my moment. Yeah. Sister act is like my jam that, that was like, so my, good. my mom loved it. She got on VHS and we used to listen to it all the time. I'm 27 years old and my mom still references that movie to me. She's like, Oh, I, yeah, I watch it all the time. <laughs> it's a classic. It, it is a classic. I love like at the end, the end scene where they're all like in the, they're performing, they take the roles. It was great. Sorry. I'm getting yeah, off topic it's here. It's a classic. <laughs> How about you, Sam? Like, did you, like, when did you realize that this is what I'm good at? Yeah. Uh, I mean, like I had, I'd always been, so my, my actual real performance career started off very young. I was in kindergarten. I was cast as chicken little in chicken little. And (laughs) then in in elementary, I, I was Santa Claus twice in elementary school programs. I think because, um, you know, I grew up in, in a small, in like a rural area in a small school, so there weren't as many, you know, if I was not, I could read, I could read music. I don't think there even was written music for it, but, you know, I could sing, and I wasn't afraid of putting myself out there. But um, I think I knew, I think I knew what I had was special when I was, like, in middle school and high school, and I was able to, um, you know, play things on the piano and do things with other instruments and like read music better than my peers that I kind of was like, Oh, okay. I'm kind of, I know what I know more of what is going on than other people do at this point. Right. And you have that, that ability to outperform them. And I would just like to say that I think we all admire your confidence and your, I guess, braveness for putting yourself out there all the time. So I know, you know, growing up and seeing you always do that and, you kind of always just took that step forward without, you know, any questions. So bravo to you for, for doing that with confidence. Thank um, you. But so we kind of talked about music, just, you know, your when you realized you were good at it and you were like, this is what I kind of want to do. When did you both kind of realize, okay, I'm liking the music side of this, but I want to go into opera performance. Caitlin, I think you have a very specific Facebook post oh, of yeah. like, <laughs> I, I want to be an opera singer and it's, this is the day and I'm going to like, I'm going to be an opera singer and then you've become it. So for you, when did you, was that that day? Was that exact day when you realized this is what I want to do? Yes. So basically I was in college to be a choral music teacher, but I was placed with an opera singer for my voice teacher. And so right from the bat, she kind of had recognized potential in me and started like educating me about opera. And so I kind of knew that I liked it, 
But the really the big moment for me, it was my very first opera I ever saw live. It was in February of my of 2009, which was my second semester of freshman year of college. And Opera Columbus was doing a production of Puccini's Turindo. And um, it, I was like completely blown away by it. It's a huge spectacle of an opera. But the real moment for me was in act two, the title character Turindo has this big aria and she was singing it and she sang the big high note in it. And I literally felt the sound like ripple across my skin. Like it made the hair raise on my arms. And after that, I just knew that this is what I had to do. Like I wanted to make people feel that way. And so I made that Facebook post that night because I was so changed by that performance. That's amazing and so amazing that you also recorded that moment because now you have that forever. And I think it's yes. so cool that you can literally re reflect back on that and say, this was the day and this was the moment and this was the time. Yes. And it's a story you can share with people. And I think that's so awesome. Yeah, and it was a big day. And Sam, for you, I know you did music education for for uh, for college, and then you kind of also started developing your opera interest. Can you kind of talk to your interest in that as well? Yeah, so um, I was in several musicals in high school, and I really enjoyed doing that. Uh, but at that time, I didn't really know that was a like a career you could do, or maybe I did, but I didn't feel like it was. Uh, you know, some, you know, I, I, I went to college to be uh, a music educator and I said to myself, you know, I, I love performing. So I'll just you know, do that, uh, you know, in like a community theater type of on the side type of thing. Um, and my freshman year at Capital University, I had a very influential operatic tenor uh, teacher, very similar to Kate, one, an, an opera singer as a voice teacher. And his name is Brian Cheney. And he was preparing, he's very influential. He introduced me to um, his mentor, Jerry Hadley, who is kind of like an American, of, he, well, he's an American tenor who was very popular in the uh, 80s and 90s and introduced me to uh, his voice. And I remember he was preparing the role of Don Jose and Carmen. And we the the studio we were in was this little closet basically, and he sang this high note and very and like Caitlin, you know, I felt it on every inch of my body, and I and I was blown away. And so from then on, I really wanted to. For me, also, it was like a I played sports growing up, and to me, it was like a, another sport. Like, how can I? I want to work hard at this to be as good as as good at it as I can be. And, um, yeah, from that, I wanted to, you know, just learn how to sing as loud as that, I guess it re was really impressive. Yeah. Well, that, and, and kind of touching on what you, um, mentioned earlier about going to school, uh, for, for music education, what, what path do you have to like take to become an opera performer? Right. And, and that includes like degrees, activities, you know, internships, whatever that may be. Cause I feel like with, you know, pop singers there, they do it all different types of ways. There's no real set way, but sure. how do you, is that similar for opera? Is there like a specific thing that you can do to make yourself like a little bit more attractive uh, to people that are actually looking for opera singers? Sure. I mean, there's, there's no, I'll start off by saying first, there's no one correct path 
to do that or really to do anything. Um, if there was, you know, we would all be, we would all do that. What I've seen from most of, uh, um, my American peers is that most of us went to school at a, to, to music school for college and either, and got some sort of music degree and whether that was in performance, education, what have you. And then, most of us, not everyone, also went on to get a master's degree, again, in like a performance, or I know there's some master's programs that do performance and pedagogy. So most of us have two degrees. Um, and as far as like, you know, what does it take? You have, there's a language component because opera is in all sorts of languages. Um, there's acting um, as well as musicianship. You have to have, you know, imagination because at all times you're trying to connect with other people's humanity and you have to be disciplined because uh, you, you have to practice all the time. You have to always be working on your voice or languages or acting or your repertoire. Uh, what do you, what else, Caitlin? Well, I was going to say also in between and while you're doing your degrees, a lot of singers do what are called young artist programs in the summers. Um, they're basically just opera companies that will put on an opera and have younger singers basically either fulfill the roles in the opera or be the covers or understudies, which is a great way for students to start learning those things that Sam mentioned. Like you get chances to work with um, different coaches and teachers to teach you about acting and language and you get chances to be on stage even if you're just in the chorus or chances to learn how to learn a role which is great because not every university is able to put on multiple operas a year so um, it's kind of a mixture of the getting the degrees and the young artist programs that it kind of makes up a typical path so like Sam said you don't necessarily have to get a master's degree. In fact, it's becoming less common for people to care about whether you have a master's degree. Um, yeah, it used to be a way for people to get more experience on stage. I remember one of my teachers in, in college, uh, he auditioned for an opera company. I think it was Cincinnati. And they said, well, we love your voice. This is really great, but you don't have enough stage experience. So go go get your master's degree, get some more time on stage, you know, grow your voice a little bit more, and then come back and sing for us. So I think lots of people started doing that, and it, I think companies have started to make they've tried to make barriers is not the right word, but um, to try try to wean the the market a little bit because it's always been kind of saturated with lots of people. So if they say everyone has to have a master's degree, then if you don't want to do that or can't do that, then that kind of shuts off those people. Yeah, I, I think, that, that. yeah. So, so but, you, you could typically, you could typically still like get stage experience without a master's degree. If you continue to audition and someone does give you a chance, correct? Oh, d exactly, definitely. Yeah. Of course. Uh, okay. And I think a lot of singers are starting to take that path now because of how expensive it is to get a master's degree. Exactly. And and I say to people all the time, like I needed my master's degree. I, I don't think I would have studied with the teacher I did if I hadn't gone to Oklahoma. And so I'm very grateful for it, but it, it's, it's a huge financial barrier for people. And it honestly, 
it's, you know, become a real issue and made it seem like the only way to be an opera singer is if you have money, which is totally not how it should be. And it's certainly not the case for us. But um, the other thing I was going to say, which I think is really important, is that once you start singing principal roles, nobody cares what school you went to or whether you went to school at all, you know? So the, the master's and the, the, even the undergrad degree are really important only for these young artist programs. Yeah. When you, when you mentioned that, you you know, it seems like the entry or the barrier to entry, right. is becoming more of like, you have to have money to be an opera performer. It kind of reminds me of the history of opera and how, like when it first started, I think, was it 1595 I'm guess I don't remember that's about right it's <laughs> yeah. like the early 1600s yeah, yeah yeah somewhere around there where it was mostly um like the those those empires and the royalty would get those performers to come out when they were hosting other royalty so it's kind of like going back to what it was way back in the day when it first happened but it, Technically, it's it's not because you could still like I can go out and go see an opera performance, but it almost feels like that's kind of shaping out to be like like making the barrier to entry a little bit higher. It could be a lot. It could be a lot easier. It could be a lot easier. Yeah. And I think that's so true. Like, you know, opera did start as a courtly as a courtly entertainment. And I think, though, that a lot of opera companies are trying really hard to make it so that you don't have to spend a hundred dollars on a ticket. And so like, like Sam and I will talk about Sarasota opera a lot because we've sung there for many years, but they have seats that are $19 that are in honestly some of the best seats in the house because you get a great view. They're in the balcony, which is great sound. So I think a lot of companies are trying to do away with that um, and kind of break that barrier that has, that has historically been up. That makes a lot of sense. I think it's a great way to encourage people to come see operas because I will say that I think most people that I know, whenever I tell them like, oh, my brother and my sister-in-law are opera singers, they're like, oh my gosh, that's so amazing. Um, But they haven't ever seen one live or they haven't like went and watched the performance. I think most people have seen probably like Phantom of the Opera, but that's like a big popular movie that they've seen. So I think that's a great way to kind of... um, encourage people to see that and kind of open them up to the culture of opera performance and get them interested in it, invested in it. Exactly. Yeah. I always thought that I needed a, a big fur coat to like go to an opera <laughs> performance. No. So I'm $19 folks. You can, you can go see it and, and it's good to get, get yourself a little exposed to different cultures and different, uh, um, not industries, but different performances. Yeah. And you yeah, can wear the absolutely. fur coat. You go, go you for can. it. <laughs> I, I yeah. always tell people it's really, you know, you don't have to spend a lot of money to go, but it can be a really fun way to go and have like a fancy evening. Even if you don't, you know, you don't have to spend $300 or even $100 on, on tickets that aren't that, you know, that, you know, that you can get tickets for, you know, 35, 40, $50 if you want to spend a little bit more. And if you want to get dressed up, you know, to the nines or wear a tuxedo or a nice suit or an evening dress or anything like that, you know, I think that that can be a really fun experience for a lot of people. Yeah, I I definitely agree. Okay, so let's talk about the process of auditioning for an opera because I've always been very intrigued with that and I think people will also be intrigued with that. Caitlin, can you kind of touch on like your, your experience with the process and kind of how you landed your first few parts and, or I guess, yeah, your first few parts in the opera performance or an opera sure. production. Sorry. Yeah. 
So the audition process for opera outside of schools has really been centralized through this app called Yap Tracker. Yap is the shorthand for Young Artist Program. So Yap Tracker basically is a place where companies can go to list opportunities. Um, a lot of them are for Young Artist Programs, but a lot of times smaller companies will also be advertising for role actual roles in operas. And so a, a big part of many opera singers' morning, especially when you get to this point in the year, is to open your morning Yap Tracker email and see what new opportunities they've added. Um, and basically, you just apply like you're applying for any job. The difference Except. is the difference is these ones require a headshot and a resume, references sometimes, um, and a lot of times companies want pre-screen videos, which are going to be videos of you singing so that they can kind of start to weed out because a lot of companies will get thousands of applicants and they only have, you know, three or four days in New York for auditions that they have. So they can't hear every single person. Um, one other uh, very strange thing about opera applications is that most of them have application fees, which is a huge financial problem for a lot of singers, especially younger singers, because, sometimes applications will cost $50 just to apply. And that doesn't even um, guarantee that you're going to be heard by the company. So that's one huge part of the audition process um, is that you have to budget for just plain applying for things. Then once you send in your applications, you wait for an email telling you you've been selected for an audition. And then you basically just travel to wherever they are and you present your arias. Basically, a lot of companies will ask for five contrasting arias in different languages or styles. Um, but my rule of thumb is always to look at what you're auditioning for. And if you're auditioning for a particular role, you'd sing something from that opera or something very similar. Um, so you go and you, you, know, you, you perform for them. And then that's it. You wait and wait and wait, and then maybe months later, you find out if you got a job. It's funny you say, and that's it, because that is probably, like, it's a very rigorous process. It's not just, like, you know, most people can sit at home and go on Indeed.com or just Google companies and literally email them a piece of paper that's their resume, maybe a cover letter, maybe, like, one reference if they want to, like, put that in there, but... Most people don't need a portfolio of like them actually performing or showing like, hey, I'm in marketing. Here's like all my marketing stuff. Um, and then you just really get you go through like an interview process where you guys are like in, literally investing like money all this time, months of waiting. Um, so I think like it's just ironic that you say that's it because I applaud <laughs> you guys for doing all of that. That's like that's incredible. It's a little it's bit ridiculous. Grueling. Yeah, yeah, it's it's grueling. I, I would say that it, most opera singers start dreading the time between kind of like September and December because that's auditions usually start in September, if not late October or uh, sorry, late August. And then they'll usually go until just before Christmas. Yeah. So this time of year is a time of high stress because once you do your first audition, you know, you're in, you're in the waiting game and you got to try to not think about the fact that you've done that audition because you have this next audition coming up. So it's definitely, I mean, this year is obviously different, but 
um, it's definitely a weird time of year. I don't think anybody enjoys it, but it's a very necessary part, even for established singers. Um, as you get older and as you get more well-known, you might audition less or you don't necessarily have to go through this whole process. Your agent or manager will just say, Hey, I'm going to have you send in a video of this to this person. But it's kind of, it's kind of almost a weeding out process for the younger people to see like who can make it through these grueling years of at the beginning, you know? Yeah. It's very weird. It's very weird. And even like, I know last year Sam came to visit us to do, I think two auditions in one weekend so mm-hmm. I yep. just like seeing you go through like going to New York, then coming back and then going into DC and then coming back and then going back to home, whether it's Ohio or wherever you live, it's, it's, it's a lot of time and yeah, crazy, crazy, crazy. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> so quick question. Some people have agents too. Yes. A lot of, a lot of the older established singers and even some of the younger ones have agents which is something that many of us look forward to because there are a lot of companies that won't hear people who don't have agents. So it's kind of another one of those necessary parts of the process. And another thing you have to budget for, because when you have an agent, you don't get your whole paycheck. So 10%, 10%. This is going back to like the whole money aspect of like being a performer. Like you, it feels like you just like for, for, when you're starting a business and I technically, I guess you are a business, right? When you're starting yes. a business, yes. you, you got to think about, you know, your expenses, you got to spend money to make money. You really have to spend a ton of money to even get a shot at being heard. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a huge, it, it's a huge part of the career, but it does pay out once you start getting principal work. I have to say that in my experience, you get paid pretty well as a principal singer. So once you get to that level, you start getting it back. You just have to be able to make it through the years where you're not, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes sense. The whole, the whole fee, uh, you know, paying to to send your materials to people. It kind of reminds me a little bit of, you know, many small towns throughout America and even cities across America built into their budget is, you know, they have like 35% of like, you know, traffic citations. It's kind of the same, you know, the, Companies have uh, in their budget, they built in, you know, we're going to charge 35 bucks per young artist application. And, you know, let's say they get a thousand applications. They only are only going to hear maybe four to 500 of them. So that's, you know, that, that is a huge moneymaker, but also some people literally cannot afford, you know, us every year we have to say, looking at the dates and where you might have to travel to audition, you have to sit, maybe I, I can't audition for them this year because I, I literally cannot afford to. Yeah. So I, I definitely think it, it could be made a lot easier for people. I think with so far what I've been seeing this year for auditions um, in this COVID world is I think we're it's starting to be that way. And I have been really actually feeling positive about the direction that the opera business I think is going to go in because I think it's going to start being more available or accessible to, to a larger number of people, both wanting to audition and have that be their career as well as audiences and people wanting to come see it. Yeah. And, and you, you mentioned COVID and what the world looks like right now. How is that affecting you all? Can you elaborate on that a little bit? How like it not only is it affecting you as far as work, but how it's changing the industry as a whole. So 
Oh, go ahead, Caitlin. Well, I was just going to say that obviously the entire arts industry is shut down and the idea of seeing a show of any kind, including opera live in a theater seems pretty far off still, you know, we're not going to really have live performances with an audience until there's a vaccine. So that is something that I think is weighing heavily over everybody. Although I think a lot of companies are getting creative and trying to find ways to still turn out a bit of profit for themselves, but also to still share music with people. Like we have two gigs coming up, one for Dayton Opera and one for Sarasota Opera to do virtual concerts. And um, so that's, I think, one thing that's positive that's coming out of this is that companies are being more creative and finding more ways other than just bring people into a theater to share opera. That makes that, that that makes a lot of sense to me. Like that, I mean, every industry is having to adapt and adjust to the times. And and it, I feel like the only industry that's trying to get back to normal is like a big Hollywood productions. And even right. they are having some issues. Um, yes. So yeah. it's forcing a lot of people to adapt. And hopefully, like you said, it'll help with the the cost of entry and instead of having to travel to like four different states for different auditions, you can just do it virtually. So. Right. I do think though, that at least for opera, this virtual thing that these companies are trying out is amazing, but there has to come a day where we get back in the theater because opera is meant to be experienced live. So, you know, the virtual thing is great. And I know that those of us who are getting an opportunity to work right now are very grateful for that. But opera is really an industry that needs people, you know, we need the the pandemic to end so that we can get back to performing in the way that this art form is best heard. That's a very great point that I think is great to be shared with everyone. And kind of like shifting back a little bit to um, the process, right, of, of getting into performances. What is the, what is, what does it feel like or what, are, or what are like the tips you have for, um, people that are auditioning because it sounds extremely grueling. It sounds like it's a, a tough go and it's kind of just getting up and kind of just getting through it. You must have had to develop some type of process or things that make it a little bit easier. So if someone's out there trying like that wants to get into the industry, how do you or do you have some, any tips for them as far as getting ready and prepared for auditioning season? Well, the first thing that I think will help for just your emotional well-being is to really set yourself up a budget for what you can afford for an audition season. That includes applications, um, paying somebody to play for you, uh, potentially for auditions, but also for recordings, travel, food, and lodging while you're in whatever city you're in. Um, if you make a budget ahead of time and you start saving for it, I think that's something that really helps because the years that I have had the most stress during audition season, it's when I have been literally on the verge of having no money at all, but still having, you know, I'm still in New York. I still have to figure out how to pay for this, this, and this, like that's a huge stressor. So if you have a semblance of a budget, it's really, really helpful. And it's around the holidays too. So you have like, you know, Christmas presents or whatever, you know, obligations to family. Um, something else that's 
been really helpful for me is to, once you get done with an one audition, completely forget about it. Don't save the email in your inbox. Just keep it out of mind until you get a response and don't check in on it. Don't look on Facebook and see if other people are getting responses from that particular company. Just keep it out. of. If you still have stuff coming out, keep stuff out of sight, out of mind, or else you're going to have too much anxiety going into your next auditions. Yeah, I try to do the same thing, really. Um, to, I've been trying to get better at viewing auditions as just a performance instead of a job interview, because then I think it's more, it's more enjoyable for everyone. For me, for the pianist, for the panel I'm auditioning, I'm singing for. Um, and for me, I, like I, you know, I, I do, I kind of look forward a little bit to being in New York in December where it's cold. And I don't know, to me, it's, I, that, that's kind of fun for me to walk around and Christmas in New York, nothing like it. Yeah, exactly. That's like a perk of, that's one good thing, you, I guess, that comes out of it is you get to travel to these, you know, famous cities and you're experiencing this city and a really great time. And, and, and usually all, all we have lots of friends and colleagues because they're all happening. The auditions are happening all at the same time in the same two to three week span. And so you get to see a lot of people that maybe you haven't seen since the year before or, you know, earlier or a gig earlier in the year or something. So that it's always, for me, that's always really fun to, you know, get catch up with friends and everything. Plus it's nice to have those people because they're all going through it too. So I always, well, first of all, we usually stay with friends in the city. So that helps too. But if you can't stay with friends, at least connect with other friends who are there because, you know, there's something about shared misery that makes it lighter. So if you're there with a bunch of other singers who are also going through it, it, it helps too to make it less just grueling. Yeah, absolutely. And even networking, I think any industry networking is always important. You have that good connection of people like that, whether they become friends that you can stay with or whether it's someone you work with down the line or, you know, whether it's someone that has other connections, I think it's great to have those people that you can lean on and, and relate to with everything involving your, your job. Exactly. Yeah. Can you, uh, let's hear from Sam. Can you kind of talk to the specific techniques and abilities needed to be an opera singer? Like, Obviously, I know in high school, like singing in a musical and then going off to college and then wanting to become an opera singer, it's not just, you know, oh, I'm just going to start singing and we're going to make it opera. Can you kind of talk about the specificities to that? Sure. So like a few basic things um, that I think are really essential to be an opera singer is I think the most important thing is the ability to stay healthy um, because we're constantly very few of us consistently work in the same area of the world all year long or even, you know, six months out of the year straight. So we're constantly traveling. That means, you know, airplanes, uh, trains, cars. So staying healthy, you know, knowing, uh, knowing your body really well so that you know, oh, I'm starting to have allergies, you know, knowing allergies versus having a cold versus having some sort of infection. Um, I think is really important as far as like, um, you know, techniques, you know, like you have to to be help. You have to singing is all about breathing. So you have to breathe really well. Um, you have to 
have a you know keep your body active, enable to be able to support um, all your your breathing apparatus, and then you also have to not think about all your tech. You know, you know, I have a technique for how I approach different notes, but then once I get into a performance or an audition, you have to not think about that because you have to think about the words that you're saying or where you have to move. There's lots of different things. I was I kind of uh, talk to people about it. It's like ice sculpting in hell. There's all, you try to do something over here, then quickly you have to go over here and, and do something else. So there's lots of um, things to think about. And so you have to be able to compart- compartmentalize. Compartmentalize, is that a word? Yeah. I think so. Okay. <laughs> compartmentalize. You have, yes, you have to be able to, to do that really well. You have to connect with human beings. I think that's really important. Um, the best operas really get at the depths of humanity. And if you can't, if you're a sociopath, probably not going to go very well. (laughs) (laughs) Also, you have to be able to project your singing voice over an orchestra. That's like the most important technique that you need. Oh, sure. That that goes without saying, of course. Right. Yeah. And and that like circles. Yeah. (laughs) That circles back to uh, when uh, Caitlin mentioned earlier about, you know, eventually, Operas need to be in a live environment, right? Where people can see it and be there and hear it and feel it. Get the because, chills on your arms. Yeah, because I've, <laughs> I've, I've, heard, I've heard it in person before. I've heard you sing in person before. And it, you, you need to be there to really feel how powerful it is and how great it is. So, I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me. But it also seems like there's a lot of things that you have to think about. So on top of learning a whole opera, right, and learning the words. So what's the process of learning an opera and being able to compartmentalize? Did I say that right? See, I'm trying to use it. <laughs> See, it's, hard. it's, it's a hard, hard word. It is a very hard word. <laughs> but, like, how do, you, how do you do all of that stuff all at once? I know that's, like, a, a really simple question, but, like, and I made it very elementary. <laughs> but, like, how do you do all that all at once? So for me, um, I think it's really important that you start off with the words because that is that is what distinguishes singing from playing an instrument, right? So for opera, we have a fancy Italian word for um, the organization of the words. It's called a libretto, which is, uh, or if you're if you are into musicals at all, it's kind of it's the same thing as a book, or just has every single word that everyone says. And so uh, typically it's not in English. So I start off by translating the libretto, uh, going through all the words, making sure I understand. It's all very, it's kind of high poetry. A lot of the, um, because it's from the 1800s, early 1900s. So you have to really understand what you're saying. There's a lot of research. um, Like right now I'm uh, I'm working on the libretto for a Verdi opera called uh, Il Trovatore, which means the troubadour. And there's lots of um, Spanish things that, you know, this, this part of the process really interests me because you learn about, um, like, the geography of different countries that you've never been to or um, how different cultures operate. When we were working on uh, the opera Turndo uh, in Sarasota, we learned that in ancient China, I was playing a, a minister, his name is Pang, and uh, we learned that in the olden days of ancient China, to be like a government official, you actually had to take a test because they only wanted the brightest and best people to run the government. And so it's, you know, you, these fascinating things. You're like, why wouldn't we still do that? I think that'd be, a really gr- that'd be a really great thing to do. So there's lots of research involved. 
Um, so when that's all taken care of, uh, then I go to the piano and I play, I can, I try my best. I'm not the best pianist in the world. I can kind of play through a score, but I mostly concentrate on my notes. And if there's really, you know, hard parts, I try to play what the, there's a reduction of the orchestra that can be played on piano. And so you kind of learn that, how the opera goes, and then you put the words and the notes together. And that's kind of, that's what I do. Yeah. Kate, Caitlin, do you have like a similar process or is that how you, you approach it when you're getting ready to um, perform? Yeah, that's pretty much the same. Um, I think it's really important when you're practicing the actual music to practice it with dramatic intention, which is why it's important that you know what you're saying before you even start singing. So that way you're, even while you're learning it, you are, you are also practicing how you would act it or how you would sing it with the drama in your voice, you know? So um, that way, once you've learned the opera and you start memorizing it, you don't have to then go back and think, okay, so I'm saying this. So how would I act that? You know, it's, it kind of all becomes this whole all encompassing practice so that when you finally do get to actual rehearsals, you kind of already have all of that figured out. Yeah. And, and I think people don't really realize all that goes into preparing for an opera performance because some people I feel like thinking and me included when I first, when I didn't know until today is that like most people feel like you just, you just go out there and you sing. Right. And not realizing there's, you know, the scores and the, the operas that you're performing, there's history tied into it. And you're also acting. And, and I remember seeing photos of you dressed up in costume. I'm like, this is, this is acting, right? And it's acting. Yeah, it's, exactly. mm-hmm. it's it's a lot of work and it takes a lot of talent to do that. And I think that is an important aspect of it. Like just hearing you all talk about how you prepare for those roles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the preparation before you get to the opera house, I think is actually the biggest part of learning an opera. Once you get into the opera house, like actually in rehearsals, that's kind of the fun part. Like, because you're actually Definitely. getting to sing it, you're getting to work with the staff, you're getting to work with the other actors and, um, and kind of then the gifts after all of that hard work is the performance, because that's when you get to go out, everything is ingrained in you. So you don't really have to think about anything. You're just out there being the character. You don't have to think, Oh, I go here next. Oh, this next word is this because you've rehearsed it so much that it's just, you get out there and that's just what you automatically do because you are that character while you're out there. Yeah. So it's like the, the, the part where I'm just at home learning the opera, it's not the most fun, you know, it, but it's the hard work that leads to the fun part, which is the performance. Yeah. And, and it kind of like going like off of that piggybacking off of that. I, when I think about acting in productions and movie productions, there's table reads and there's, you know, and, and it's mostly just learning at your home. Uh, so when you talk about operas, like you're, you're performing and you, you're, you have a lot of moving parts, there's rehearsals. So what is like, what does that schedule look like? So you're probably like learning the opera at home. Then you're probably coming in for set days and rehearsing. Can you walk us through that? Yeah. So usually um, you'll start, well, in some companies they will do a table read Um, of the libretto, which like Sam said, is kind of like the play of the opera. So some companies will do a table read where they'll read it in English or even read it in the original language. 
Um, and then you move into music rehearsals, which depending on the company and the production could be a week long, might be only a few rehearsals. And then after you have music rehearsals and the conductor has kind of let you know what he wants from your actual singing, then you get into stage rehearsals, which are usually where, you know, the director, the stage director will say, okay, now you move here on this part and this is where you go over here and pick this up. And so you do that. That takes weeks. I mean, some companies put it up a lot faster than that, but usually it's like two weeks of rehearsals where you're working on the staging. And then you go to the stage itself and practice on the stage with the set. And then you get to the performance. So it's, it's a lot of rehearsal that leads up to it. And sometimes it's a lot of rehearsal packed into a short amount of time. But and uh, usually on gigs, you'll be working at least eight to ten hours every day in rehearsal. Wow! Well, sh- shout out to you all learning different languages because um, I think that's <laughs> phenomenal. And having to like, and you're probably learning a different language almost every new performance. So shout out to you all. <laughs> yeah, very impressive. Do you guys want to talk about keeping your voice in good shape when you think about? Like, you know, people that are athletes and they're basically doing your schedule, but instead of singing, they're working out or they're playing a game or they're practicing. Um, I think we should definitely touch on how you guys keep your voice in good shape, how you take care of yourself and making sure, you know, when you're in between performances, um, in between rehearsals, making sure that it's good to go at all times. And I'm sure it's also different for women and men because it's, we have different voices and tones. So, um, can you guys both talk about how, how you do that? Yeah. So when we're at home, um, you're preparing a role or working on new repertoire or, or anything like that. Um, it's really important because you, your voice, your larynx is a, is a muscle just like an F, you know, any other muscle in your body. So it's really important to, uh, before you start really working hard, you want to make sure that that muscle is warmed up and ready to go. So um, one good thing is to, to not start too early to make sure you're actually kind of awake. So usually I don't start singing until after I've had something to eat and coffee or something like that. Um, and then you start off, uh, I usually start off kind of uh, in the lower or the lower middle part of my voice and do scales and get up into the higher part of my voice. Um, when I was younger, I really focused a lot on my high notes. And now, and then there came a point where it started to be a little bit detrimental because I would wear myself out because I was singing too many high notes. So it's also important to have like a balanced, to not you know use one part of your voice too much, you know, so that it's so that you it is balanced and you're not overworking one muscle group more than the other. Um, and so then after scales, then, um, usually I'll get into, I'll do, I'll sing in falsetto. So, um, as opposed, so here's an example. So right now we're, I'm talking in like a, what I would call like a chest voice, which is my regular talking voice. And if I want to sing in falsetto, I would sing up here in a falsetto kind of Mickey mouse voice. That's that actually is, a really good impression. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. So, and, and that, and when you sing like that, that's using actually different muscles to bring your vocal cords together. And so that's why I do that because it, it works a different set that usually 
Because usually when I sing in an opera, I'm not using that voice, but it's still important to exercise and develop those muscles because they help you, um, like uh, Jane said, to get kind of different tones and use different colors. So what am I forgetting, Caitlin? Tell me. Well, so you touched on it. You know, singers are athletes too. It's just the muscles that we're working tend to be smaller. Our vocal folds, you know, those it's, it's all around getting those to open and close at the right amount of speed and frequency to make pitches, you know, like it's something that you you don't think to yourself, this is, I'm going to move this vocal fold like this and blah, blah, blah. 440 times a second to sing. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Right. You just do it. But it's still muscle groups. And, you know, we have to use our abdomen muscles to support our breathing and all of that. So it, it really is an athletic event. And so much like any athlete, if you start too hard, you're going to wear yourself out and you could even hurt yourself. So warming up, like Sam said, low and slow um, is a, a really great way to get started before you start moving into your repertoire. I mean, you know, because our our instrument is our voice, you can't practice actual singing for like hours and hours and hours. Like a no pianist matter, could. Right. No matter how in shape you are vocally, you're going to run out of steam and you're going to run out of voice. So I like to do little spurts throughout the day. Um, we're all, it's my first, my first thing of the day, I'll always warm up. But then later in the day, after I've talked, and as you guys know, I talk quite a lot. So even talking sometimes <laughs> warms me up. Um, but after I've kind of woken up more and have talked to people and had coffee, I'll go sing again and I won't necessarily need to warm up. But the most important thing is that you sing every day. Um, much like an athlete, if you go for stretches of time where you're not exercising those muscles, they'll get stiff and out of shape. So, you know, it's really important, especially when you are on a gig that you are singing constantly. Um, that being said, you also have to know how to rest. So when I was doing La Vallée this spring in Sarasota, the day of a performance, I would try to talk very little because I knew I was going to be using up a lot of the voice that I had for the day in the evening. And then the morning after a show, I would try to be restful at least in the morning and not do much talking until the late afternoon just to give my voice as much time as possible to recover. Because once you lose your voice, you can't really do anything till it comes back. There's no magic cure. If you, if you run out of steam, you run out of steam and you have to wait until basically you sleep and your body repairs itself. And this is the only voice we have. Like other musicians, you know, if, you have, if you're a trumpet player, you can, if you, and your trumpet breaks or you want to get a better one, you can go buy a better one or a better violin. But you can't, this is the only, the, our voice, this is all we have. You know, we can't put it in a case or upgrade it. So we have to be, it's part of us, it's part of our body. So we have to be a little bit careful with it. Yeah, you, you, you all are full-fledged athletes. Like just, yeah. just like hearing it, it sounds exactly what athletes go through. Training wise, taking care of yourself, definitely preparing, performing, and then recovery. It sounds like all of like the steps that athletes go through. This is important. It's a for discipline. Them to hear. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
Opera singers are athletes. Vocal that's athletes. Right. Vocal so they, athletes. I think there's a book called that. Oh, the vocal awesome. athlete. There is. Yeah. yeah. That's amazing. Uh, um, okay. I think Caitlin, I feel like I've, I've, I've seen you post a few things about this before. So I know that there have been some like mainstream artists that have used opera music in their songs or have claimed, I think it was Ariana Grande. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like it was her, someone else similar where they sang a song or released a song and they were like, this is opera. And can, do you have just, what are your thoughts on that? Um, as far as if it's accurate when they are releasing those songs, like, is it actually opera? Do you have like a certain opinion on um, how you feel about that when they do come out with these songs and they're saying or making claims that may not be all the way correct about your your industry? Yes. So um, you're right. It was it was Ariana Grande did a duet with Andrea Bocelli, I think That's is right. what it was. And um, so I'm really torn about this because I do understand that opera is not really mainstream so when a mainstream artist is claiming that what they're doing is opera, then maybe people will go seek it out. You know, maybe they're like, oh, wait, what's opera? I like this. Let me go see. Let me go Google opera or look at opera on YouTube, you know. So th there's there's pluses to it. Um, I think in particular, though, like um, the example that comes to mind is when Kanye West released yes. his opera last year. Yes. It was um, of Nabucco, right? It was an it was a version of Nabucco, but it was not the same as the actual opera Nabucco, which is the which is the Bible story of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, yeah. So, the the I my idea about that is that one, it wasn't opera. It didn't qualify at, as opera at all, but that made me feel like. Kanye was not really respecting what opera was because he hadn't done any research at all. He just was like, I'm going to call this an opera. So it sounds like it's really high class. Right. Because that's, you know, the vibe that opera has. So I kind of was like, why did he not even look up what an opera was? The other thing is that if people think that's what opera is, and then they go and look at other, at, at actual operas, they might be disappointed because it's not Kanye West and a group of backup singers, you know, it, it, and so they might think this is boring because it's not what I saw Kanye West do. So in that way, I think it was kind of bad that they're using opera to try to make their art look a certain way, you know? Yeah. So it, it, it comes both ways. I mean, people hear opera all the time in commercials, um, opera, operatic themes have been used in commercials and TV shows for years. Like my sister saw Carmen a couple years ago and she said that she loved it. And a big reason she loved it was because she recognized so many of the themes. So even when she felt like she was getting bored by something, then she would hear one of these recognized themes and she's like, Oh, I've heard this. I've heard this. And then she was excited again. Like that's the uses of opera that I think are really productive versus somebody singing with vibrato for the first time and then saying, I'm an opera singer, like Ariana Grande did. Right. It kind of like, if you're going to do it, do it the right way. So you're not right. like, disrespecting the, the industry. Yeah, it's only, it's only respectful if you're going to say what you're doing is that to have actually looked at what it is. Because one, maybe you might find out you're interested in it and might want to sample from it. 
but also then it doesn't miseducate people because we really, in the opera world, we really want people to know about opera. The only way to keep opera alive is for young people to start listening to it. And I'm afraid that young people won't listen to it if they're expecting Kanye West and they get Mozart, you know? Mm-hmm. So I, I agree with the, with the sentiment, um, Caitlin, but I, I do, I, I feel like, so opera, literally when opera was made in like the 1600s in Italy, they called it opera because that word in Italian literally means a work. So to call something an opera in the literal sense is just a work and Kanye can call that whatever he wants, but it doesn't mean, uh, you know, that that's actually what it is. And that's, and that's all. I don't think Kanye though knows that the Italian word for work is opera. No, you're, you're probably right. <laughs> yeah, definitely. You're, you're probably right. Yeah. So like kind of like going off this a little bit. So like, I feel like people would be confused seeing, thinking that like Broadway is probably opera as well. What are like the differences between opera versus Broadway style wise and, and singing wise? So the biggest difference is that in opera, when you go to, when you go to a theater to see an opera versus when you go to a theater to see like a Broadway musical, um, in opera, there's no microphones um, that amplify the singer's voices. Or there's not supposed to be. Um, and in Broadway, they do use microphones. So that's a big difference. Um, and then, uh, for broad, they use, there's different instrumentation, um, in, in opera, in traditional opera, there's not like drum sets, for instance, or guitars. Um, whereas in some of the more modern musicals, you have more modern instruments, one thing that make I mean, they're they're both a form of uh, musical theater. So, um, and even when opera was being written in the eighteen, like all Verdi's operas in the eighteen hundreds and Puccini's in the nineteen early nineteen hundreds, um, and like Carmen, for instance, it, it, all the all the music in those were uh, quote popular music, just of that time. And so, I think what you know, Broadway. Ne- now is still popular music but it's the kind of popular music that you would hear on the radio or from like an art one of your more favorite current artists so that's how that's kind of evolved a little bit i think it's it's part of the same vein it's just newer i think gotcha and also i think that um when you go to see a broadway show the singing that you're going to hear is really different. They focus a lot, at least in the really contemporary musicals on belting, which is kind of the like high straight tone sound, which is more reminiscent of what is pop music right now. So versus an opera where you're going to hear classical singing with vibrato. I mean, there are musicals that have classical singing, but they're usually the older musicals like Oklahoma and the music man. Um, but I think one thing that an, a thing that unites opera and Broadway, at least in a technical standpoint, is that in order to produce a healthy sound and any type of singing, you have to have a classical technique and classical singing, you know, is the basis for all types of singing. So I just think it's really interesting to think that, you know, classical music has been around since the early 1600s 
And all that time they were kind of building up to this healthy belt that you're hearing in musical theater today. Gotcha. Yeah. So like there's, there, there seems like there's like a healthy dose of differences and similarities between opera performers and, and Broadway performers as well. So like what are the challenges do you face as an opera performer uh, versus like someone who just wants to launch like a pop music career or maybe like a Broadway career as well. Like what are like some of the, 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 the contrasting differences between those two um, paths? Well, I should, go ahead, Caitlin. I was just going to say there is one huge thing that is the same for all three veins of singing. And that is that there are a ton of singers all auditioning for the same jobs. So that's a struggle that all performing artists have that they can kind of unite over no matter what type of singing is that we're all struggling for, you know, there's, there's too many people in the pool and only one ladder kind of sort of thing. So we're all kind of, we're all kind of looking, looking for the same jobs. I think one thing though, that's really different about opera is that our, our opportunities are all gig based. There's not really a lot of opportunity to make your own work. Like a pop singer can go to an open mic night or any sort of other thing where they can just go to try to be heard like American Idol auditions and like all that kind of stuff versus an opera singer. We kind of, there's not really an opera. You can't just say, Hey, I'm going to sing opera right here and hope someone notices me. You know, it's, it's really different because opera isn't as mainstream. That's a very good point. Can you also just touch on um, like your your primary source of income as an opera performer? Um, I'm assuming it comes from your actual performances, but maybe there's other, you know, parts to it as well that you have like an income that that you get. I've I've not experienced this for myself, but I've heard tell that doing big concerts like with just an orchestra, you're not doing an opera, you're doing a concert of all sorts of different arias or songs and or duets and things like that can be very lucrative. I've not experienced it for myself, but yes, most of our most of our income is from uh, our our gig work as singers. But even you know, we still we're, we're we are still fairly early on in our careers, and so we don't we're not working you know all year long just going gig to gig to gig to gig. So. There, we do even and even even seasoned professionals have to, sometimes have to do other sorts of work when they're not, you know. We we call it lovingly a muggle job um, mm. when we're not when we're not you know on, on a gig doing that. So we do have to, especially now, it's really useful. There's a whole there's a, an entire group of even like really big star singers who are doing virtual lessons or like consulting sessions or master classes or, or things like that. So there's lots of things that you can that there that you can still do as a singer but you're not, but it's not doing um, an opera specifically. Yeah. And I think like Caitlin touched on that earlier too, like like pop singers or any, they could just go do open mics, even comedians. Um, I was listening to Steve Harvey's story one time and he's like, I got a call to go do this one show. And it was like the, the Def Jam or like something. It was like the opening up of the Apollo and he was able to go do that and get some money. So like, it just seems like it's a lot, it's a lot more difficult to find those opportunities, uh, right. opportunities for you all. But then, right. but then as you, as you get more well-known then you know, because they wouldn't call me to open for the Apollo, but they call Steve Harvey because P- 
people have heard of him. Yeah. So once you sort of kind of, once you create a name for yourself, people know who you are. It definitely is easier to get, Oh, like, Hey, I know that Sam knows, you know, he can do this really quick and it's not, you know, a difficult thing for him to just put on. So. Makes sense. Do you guys have a favorite opera uh, production or do you guys have like a personal favorite? Like, I don't know if some of them are actual movies now, or, but do you have one that you would recommend that people watch or listen to, to maybe, uh, that would be like a good way to get interested in one or like an easy one to follow along with? I always yeah. tell people to go listen to Puccini's La Boheme. Yep. That was first it's, on my list too. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's got, it's, it's a, a story it's that perfect. everybody can relate to. It's got love. It has sadness. Um, it has a fun group of people who all, you know, experiencing life together. Um, some of the most beautiful music and opera, um, plus, um, the, the Broadway musical rent is actually based off of La Boheme. So if you like rent, you kind of know the story. I mean, La Boheme doesn't involve AIDS, but it's the same story of a group of, of people going through a, a tough life of poverty together and falling in love along the way and all that kind of stuff. So I it's think rela- it's very who, relatable. Yeah. It's a, and it's also beautiful. You know, a lot of people, when they see an opera for the first time, they see one of the operas from like the 15 or 16 or the 16 or 17 hundreds. And those operas are not always the most, listener friendly if you don't know what you're getting into and so people think that opera is stuffy or boring but if you listen to La Boheme I mean the music is almost like a movie soundtrack like it's so sumptuous and it'll break your heart whether you know what they're saying or not all right you heard it 100% recommended yeah yeah <laughs> Sam recommended it too that was top of his yes. list as well yeah so that and that Good question to ask is who are your favorite composers? Like I know, I know Puccini, I know Verdi, I know uh, Rossini. I think I'm saying that right. Um, there's like, so, and I think I just named all, all Italian composers. So. You did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like, do you have a favorite composer? Mine is probably Puccini. Um, my first big roles were Puccini. And I just think that like Sam has been saying a lot, like you as an opera singer, you really have to appeal to the humanity of people I really think that Puccini wrote with the humanity of people. Like it's impossible to not feel when you're listening to his music. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The same Puccini to me is the most accessible composer because I mean the, the music of Verdi to me is so brilliant and beautiful because it's so to me, it's so, simple and it evokes different emotions to me it's like there's in those early operas there's a lot of these kind of like almost militaristic marches but it's very you know there's lots of kind of like fanfare is not the right word but there's kind of like a fanfare to it and um and i marvel at like at the simplicity of his melodies because you look at you look at it or you're here and you say oh that's so beautiful it's so moving but then as a musician and sometimes it is complex, but as a musician, you look at the the notes and the harmonies, and it's not really complex at all. It's like I could have thought of that, but I couldn't have thought of that at the same time. Um, 
But Puccini, I think, is the most accessible because of the stories and because of the acting style. It, um, it's more similar to what we're used to in um, more contemporary plays and television and, and film than the... Uh, Verdi opera. Yeah, Verdi is a little bit more like Shakespeare, where it's, they talk in... It's more like high poetry. Mm-hmm. You know, ele- it's more elevated and... Well, I still th- well, I still love Verdi, and if it weren't for Verdi, there probably wouldn't be, there wouldn't have been Puccini, and there probably wouldn't really be opera at all today. So, really, we have him to thank. But I think Puccini is just a lot more accessible to people. Yeah, perfect. I did. I did some reading like like before this, and they were talking about how Puccini is the greatest composer of Italian opera after Verdi. <laughs> so, yeah. Like, yeah. That, yeah. Like, that, it's very interesting. But like, I, I think that it's always the first, the, the, what do they say? Uh, the first person to do something or like, I am losing the word, but there's like a specific word for the, the person that started it off. Right. Um, the innovator. Yeah. The innovator, the trailblazer, right. And it's always, predecessor. yeah. Yeah. It's always the one that is going to be at the top of history, but the predecessors are always the ones that are usually better just because they took yeah. a little bit from them and kind of mixed it with something else to kind of make it this beautiful, great thing afterwards. So it was interesting Absolutely. doing that reading and, and hearing you talk about, you both talk about Puccini and what he means to you and the op, like the opera industry is, as a whole. Absolutely. Yeah. I had a coach in college who called that the innovators and the sublimators. Like the innovators are always great because they brought us that, but the, the people who made it sublime, those are the ones that you really remember. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, this is, uh, I'll wrap this up, uh, with a question that we usually ask everybody. Um, I think I'll start with you first, Caitlin. Okay. Uh, we typically ask people, what's one piece of knowledge that you would like everyone to know, um, in, in general about opera or whatever you, you think would be important for them to know? I think it's really important that people know that opera is not boring. I know that it, I mean, I've seen commercials lately where they use opera as this boring thing that people are sleeping through and all that stuff. But that is, I I can't imagine sleeping through a Verdi or a Puccini opera. I mean, it's got everything that you see on TV, love, deceit, fear, death, just told on a grander scale and with just soaring orchestral melodies. So I really think that no matter what you think you know about opera, seek it out, go listen to La Boheme or something else by Puccini and just listen and let it wash over you because I really feel that if you just give opera a chance and listen to the right opera as your first one, you'll be hooked. How about you, Sam? Yeah, I would say I agree with all of that. Um, I would say, you know, we are, opera singers are really fun people to be around. If you go to a show, try to stick around afterwards and catch one of them like coming out the door and tell them you enjoyed their performance. And I, I for one, am always really happy to, to talk to people and, um, you know, talk to them about the opera, about the history, about the business. Um, and lots of people find that really interesting, but also in the, you know, in this kind of, um, you know, as we, this is, I mean, it's our job to, to do this. So we're, it's just like people going to an office or, you know, working on a, uh, you know, being a construction worker, working as a plumber. This is what 
we've chosen to do as our vocation. So it's we're we're really you know I, I feel like we're very approachable people. We're we're regular people. We're not all warm with silver spoons in our mouths. Um, we've worked hard to be where we are. Period. That was Caitlin Crable and Sam Schlievert. You can follow them on their Instagrams at Caitlin Crable and at Samuel Schlievert, or check out their websites, CaitlinCrableSoprano.com or SamuelSchlievert.com to stay up to date on all their opera performances or to even hear a singing debut. As always, don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Savvy Dialogue. And go ahead and leave us a review. It actually really makes a difference. See you next time.